we come to the study of the Word of God in Matthew chapter 5 today, the, the study of the Beatitudes is so precious to us because it defines for us who is in the kingdom and who is outside the kingdom. We were all born into this world outside the kingdom. Not a one of us was born saved. That is why we have to be born again in order to become sons of God and daughters of God. And the Beatitudes become for us a passage that so succinctly states what are the characteristics of the one who has truly entered into the kingdom of God. And we are abundantly aware at the end of this sermon that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. How easy it is merely to profess Christ, but sadly not to possess Christ. And so the Beatitudes really help us get to the bottom line of what is a true believer, what is a true Christian. And there are certain features that describe every believer. In fact, we find in these Beatitudes even the very steps of saving faith. We come today to the seventh Beatitude as we have for a moment stepped out of our study of the Gospel of Mark. And we find ourselves in verse 9 on Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, I want to begin reading in verse 1 to set the larger context for this. But today, our focus is exclusively on verse 9. We read in verse 1, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. And after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that is where it begins for anyone to enter the kingdom, to realize the bankruptcy of your own soul spiritually before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Everyone who is inside the kingdom has come to mourn over their spiritual poverty. Blessed are the gentle, which also means meek, or to be brought to a a place of submission under a higher authority. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. No one will enter the kingdom without the righteousness of God in Christ being given to them. And we must hunger and thirst for this righteousness that comes only from God as He imputes it to us in the act of justification. For they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When Jesus first uttered these words, they came as a shock to the Jews who heard it that day. Those who lived in ancient Israel had the idea that the Messiah was coming, that He was coming soon, and when He bursts upon the scene, He will come to wage war against their enemies. And the Jews had suffered over the many centuries at the hands of their Gentile oppressors. Israel had lived in bondage in Egypt for 400 years until Moses led them out. But there they were oppressed for four centuries. Israel had been oppressed by the Canaanites and the Philistines when they entered into the land. And they had been taken captive and even removed out of their land, first in the invasion of the Assyrians and second in the invasion of the Babylonians. They have known oppression and have suffered defeat for century after century after century. And yet, they have the hope from the prophets that a Messiah will come and break the yoke of their oppressors. 
They were full of misery as they now are under the dominion of the Romans who have come into the promised land and have set up their headquarters right there in Jerusalem. So as a result, the Jews were looking for a military Messiah, a political Messiah who would come in, take over, and take charge. And they thought the Messiah would come and enthrone Himself in Jerusalem right then as a great King and who would deliver them out of their bondage. They thought the Messiah, when He came, would fight and shed blood and defeat their enemies and set them free from all that they have suffered. So when Jesus announced this, Blessed are the peacemakers. They no doubt were stunned. His kingdom would be a kingdom of peacemakers. Peacemakers with Rome, offering olive branches to their enemies. That was the last thing in the world that they expected to hear from His lips. What Jesus says here is counterintuitive to their way of thinking as they have been longing for the day of the Messiah's coming. When Jesus stood before Pilate in the praetorium, the Roman headquarters that had been established in Jerusalem, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world then my servants would be fighting. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. His kingdom is a kingdom within the hearts of men. He came not to establish at His first coming a political kingdom over and against Jerusalem. At His first coming, He has come to establish a spiritual kingdom within the hearts of men. Oh, be assured there will be a second coming. Be assured there will be a white horse that will come galloping out of heaven and the King of kings and the Lord of lords seated upon it and the blood of His enemies staining His garments and He will come back to the battle of Armageddon and He will wage war and utterly destroy His enemies. But that is then, at the time of His second coming. This is now the time of His first coming. And He has come to offer a kingdom that is totally different from what they expected Him to announce this day. It is this same kingdom that He offers to us here today. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places in Christ. Our warfare is a spiritual warfare, but it is a spiritual kingdom in your heart and in my heart that Christ has come to inaugurate and to usher in. Not a kingdom of politics, but a kingdom of peacemakers. We come this morning to the seventh beatitude in which this is made most clear to us. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, calls this quote, the seventh step of the golden ladder, which leads to blessedness. This seventh step, this seventh beatitude, is a call for us to be peacemakers as our God in heaven is a peacemaker. Now, I want you to note with me this morning five main headings of truth as we look at this one simple verse. Look at it again. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's excavate out of the, the gold mine here the rich nuggets for us. I want you to note first the delight of peacemakers of peacemaking, the delight of peacemaking. Notice how this beatitude begins. Blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let me remind us again 
that this word blessed refers first to be graced and to be favored by God as opposed to being cursed by God. It represents saving grace being bestowed upon us. But there's more. It also refers to the quality of our spiritual life once we are in the kingdom and He promises now blessing upon us as we fulfill our duty as peacemakers. This word blessed, in the Greek it is makarios, means happy, content, joyful, satisfied. What Jesus is saying is happy are the peacemakers and miserable are those who stir up strife. He is saying joyful are the peacemakers. And empty and hollow and full of vanity are those who are peace breakers. This is a benediction that is pronounced by God upon peacemakers. Blessed, blessed are the peacemakers. Would you be happy today? Would you know joy in your soul? Would you be filled with bliss? Then Jesus tells us here how to experience the abundant life that is ours in His kingdom, and it is for us to pursue a path of peacemaking. The greatest joy in the kingdom is to know the King Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second greatest joy is to be a peacemaker, one who helps restore broken relationships with this king. Now, to the contrary, if blessed are the peacemakers, then we could say conversely, cursed are the peace breakers. Now, this beatitude sharply rebukes those who are strife makers. If peacemakers are children of God, as this beatitude says, then peace breakers are children of the devil. Or they are those who are acting as such. It was not for no reason that Paul wrote in Romans 16 and verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Turn away from them. They are acting as the devil, who is a divider of God's people. He says, turn away from those who cause dissensions. The devil was the first peace breaker. It was the devil who divided the angels from God. It was the devil who divided Adam and Eve from God. And it is the devil who continues to drive a wedge between God and men. These are the people, these are those whom God hates. Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. And now He lists the seven things that God hates in the lives of people. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and now number seven. Now in the climactic position, everything has led up to this which God supremely hates with all of His soul. And one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates with all of His heart, all of His soul, and all of His mind. The work of peace-breaking and spreading strife among brothers. But what a delight it is to be a peacemaker. And the joy of God 
and the blessedness and the happiness of God that comes flooding into our souls when we are those who are fence menders and bridge builders. When we are those who reach out to restore and to reconcile. Proverbs 12, verse 20 is very clear on the blessedness that comes to us when we seek to be peacemakers. Proverbs 12, verse 20 says, Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But counselors of peace have joy. Who are those who have joy? They are those who are counselors of peace, meaning those who are working toward and desiring to promote peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is the delight of peacemaking. And part of the joy that you will know in the Lord Jesus Christ is as God uses you to be a peacemaker in your own family, in the office, in this church, in the community, in the world, wherever you find yourself. Now, number two, the definition of peacemaking. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And you may find it interesting to note that this is the only use of this word in the Bible. This is the only place where we find in the 66 books of inspired Scripture this word, peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. There is a primary meaning and there is a secondary meaning. I want us to get our arms around this and to understand what Jesus is saying. Primary meaning is this. The first half of the word is peace. It means the same as the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, which carries the idea of well-being, completeness, health, harmony. The idea even of prosperity or success. When a Jew in Jesus' day said peace, he meant that he desired for another person to experience a, a complete and whole life, a full and blessed life. Maker, that's peace. Maker means that one desires to be used by God to promote peace in the lives of, of others. It means to work for peace. It means to labor for peace. It means to build toward peace. So when you pull these two words together, peace and maker, to form peacemaker, it refers to one who is actively pursuing the promotion of peace in the lives of others. It is one who is used by God to help others experience all that God has for them, to live a whole and complete life, we would say. That it would be, in the words of the hymn, that it would be well with their soul. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. To promote all in another's life, that it would be well with their soul. To minister to another person spiritually. Now, there's a secondary meaning of this word. And the secondary meaning is to restore fractured relationships. Where there has been a breach and where there has been friction. And blessed are those who seek to bind up that which has been broken relationally. Abraham was a peacemaker. When he said to Lot in Genesis 13, verse 8, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Now Moses was a peacemaker like this when he stepped in between the two Hebrews who were arguing and said in Exodus 2, verse 13, Why are you striking your companion? Solomon sought to promote this kind of, of peace when he wrote in Proverbs 15, verse 1, 
a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15:18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Jesus himself promoted this kind of peace later in this very chapter when he said, Do not resist an evil man, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And in this, Abraham, Moses, Solomon, Jesus, countless other verses could be quoted, such as uh, Romans 12, verse 18, Pursue peace with all men, so much as in you lies. We are to be peacemakers. This means primarily we are to promote the spiritual well-being of others in their lives. We are to minister to them that it would be well with their soul. Whatever is required in that. Ministering the Word to them, praying for them, encouraging them, walking alongside of them, serving them. And it also speaks secondarily of restoring relationships that have been fractured. So what is the definition of a peacemaker? What is it that the Lord desires of you and me? That we must be those whose eyes are not upon ourselves, but upon our God and upon others. And giving ourselves completely to others as we would promote peace, that it would be well for their spiritual life. We are to be actively involved in reaching out to others to build them up and to restore them in their spiritual life. This leads now third to the dimensions of peacemaking. There are four different dimensions of peacemaking. There are four aspects, four elements, four facets involved in peacemaking. And I, and I want us to think very carefully about these four because these are the tracks that the Lord would have us run down as we seek to promote peace and pursue peace with others. Number one, a peacemaker promotes peace between God and men. Between God and men. And to give you one word, this is what we call objective peace, which is a state of peace or a standing of peace that one enters into where they previously have been in a state of war. They go from being in a state of war to being in a state of peace. And as this relates to promoting peace between God and men, what this refers to is our sharing the gospel of peace with others so that they can go from being enemies of God at war with God and God with them, to enter into a state of being sons of God and friends of God and to be now accepted by God. A peacemaker is one who shares the gospel with others. He or she is a witness, gives a testimony, proclaims Christ to others. For therein is the only way that men can be at peace with God. This is the greatest peace that any man can have in this world. To be at peace with God. The fact is that when we entered this world, Romans 5.10 says we were enemies. We entered this world in a state of declared war against God. We were in rebellion against God. We were resistant to God. We opposed God, whether actively or passively. Colossians 1.21 says we were formally alienated and hostile in mind. That's where every believer is. 
in his or her relationship with God, enemies, alien, and hostile. But through the cross, the peace of God is offered. Peace with God. And Romans 1 verse 5 makes this so clear. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone here today is either at war with God or at peace with God. Everyone here today is on one of two sides. There is not a, a, a spiritual Switzerland that you can go to, to to sit out the war. We're on one of two sides. And we were born into this world in a state of alienation and hostility toward God. And for us to be peacemakers, we come to those who are without Christ. We come to those who are outside the kingdom. We come to those who are in a state of war with God, under the wrath of God. And we say to them, God offers peace to you. This peace has come through the cost of God's own Son at Calvary. It comes through the blood of the cross. And if you will by faith believe upon Jesus Christ, you will, you will change sides from a, sti- a side of declared enmity against God to enter into peace with God. And it's not just that you're at war with God. Be assured, God is at war against every sinner. The wrath of God right now is upon every unbeliever. And what great need people have to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ that they may accept God's terms of peace in Christ. This is the first aspect of being a peacemaker. It is fulfilling the Great Commission. It is spreading the Gospel. It is sharing the cross. And this involves our verbal witness. It involves our prayers. It involves living a holy life. It involves our missions involvement. It involves sharing Christ with those who are around us. It involves fulfilling our duty as a minister of reconciliation in the kingdom of God. This is the greatest peace that you can ever promote with anyone else to promote peace between God and men. There's a second aspect of this peace. For us to be a peacemaker, there's a second aspect, and it is this, a peacemaker promotes peace within men. Not just between God and men, but secondly now within men. If the first peace is objective peace, this is subjective peace, which is the peace of God in the heart. This is different from peace with God. That is our state and our standing. This is the peace of God. This is our experience within. This is the peace of inner calm and tranquility amid the storms of life. And if we are to be a peacemaker, we are to so minister to others that we promote peace within their hearts as well. And let me say this, no one will ever have peace within their hearts until they first have peace with God. It is only once they have peace with God and cross over from this side of the war to God's side of the conflict, are they ready now to experience the peace of God. This is subjective peace, meaning there is an ebb and a flow to it. It is experiential. It is, it is within the heart. Jesus offered this in John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
And one of the greatest ministries you and I can ever have is to be used by God in the lives of other believers so as to encourage them as a Barnabas that they will have peace multiplied in their hearts. We contribute to the peace of one another. We also can take away from the peace of others. Our sin will always forfeit peace Not only in our lives, but it brings heartache to others. But we can be used to promote peace in the hearts of others. This is what Paul spoke of in Philippians 4, verse 6. He writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, that is the subjective peace of God in the heart, the inner calm, the peace, the the serenity, the tranquility, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It It is beyond our ability to intellectually process. It is such... It is, it is so supernatural and it is so divine. It is so of another world that there is no reason for us to be at peace in the midst of this storm except God be in my life and God give peace to me. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard That is a military term. It speaks of guarding a fortress. We'll guard so that there is no invasion from the outside. No worry. No anxiety can come in. We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the second aspect of peace that we are to make with others. One, we are to help them have peace with God. Second, we are to help them have the peace of God. Colossians 3 verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So how do we promote this kind of peace? Well, I just jotted down some ways, several ways. This is so practical. By urging others to put their eyes on the Lord and trust Him. That promotes peace in their heart. By encouraging them to commit their burdens to the Lord in prayer. By speaking words of encouragement to others that lift their spirits. That promotes peace in their hearts. By praying for those who are without peace, that they will have peace. By speaking to them of God's sovereignty over their trials. That God will cause all things to work together for their good. That promotes peace in their hearts by reminding them of God's presence in their lives in this storm by setting before them God's wisdom that God is doing what is right and perfect in their lives by bearing their burdens, by becoming involved in their lives when they are in need. By ministering the Word to them, quoting Scripture, sharing the Word with them, that makes for peace in their hearts by supporting them in their hour of great difficulty. This is the peacemaking of which our Lord speaks. First, that we would help others enter into peace with God. That is in the Gospel. And then second, that we would help others experience the peace of God within their hearts, praying for them, visiting them, speaking to them. Third, a peacemaker promotes peace with men, meaning my relationship with other people, with other men. I need to promote peace and to be one who is reaching out to promote that which restores relationships. Jesus will speak of this later in Matthew 5 and verse 23, promoting peace with men. Not within men, 
but with men. Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. This is how we make peace with others, with men, by going to those that we sense are, are upset with us and seeking to untie the knot. Later in this chapter, in Matthew 5, verse 43, I draw this to your attention. Uh, Jesus says that we must love even our enemies. Those that we know are opposed to us as we love them, we are sowing peace. We are promoting peace. And let me say very quickly, this does not mean that we sacrifice our convictions. And this does not mean that we become tolerant of error, nor that we become tolerant of sin. It does mean, though, that we do all that is within us to promote peace towards others. So in Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As the Jews heard this, they thought first of the Romans who were there in military splendor and, and might, there to suppress them, there to restrict them, there to tower over them, rather than hearing Jesus say, I will defeat them for you, Jesus says the very opposite, I call upon you to love your enemies. How counterintuitive this is. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He says even God shows kindness and goodness and in that sense, peace towards His enemies. He sends the rain and the sun even to bless those who are opposed to Him. So we too must love our enemies. But a part of this is also what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 18 and verse 15. Sometimes being a peacemaker involves confronting another believer about their sin. This is not just roll over and play dead and pretend like this disruptive brother or sister is has never done wrong. Now, to be a peacemaker requires confronting a brother or a sister about their sin. All sin disrupts the peace of the body of Christ. There is never an act of sin, but that it does not have its effect upon others. It's the ripple effect, a pebble tossed into the middle of the pond. It sends out its movement and its uh, ripple effect all the way to the perimeters. And so does one sin in the body of Christ. Like Achan at Ai, it brings an effect upon the whole. It's like one stone tossed into a glass, a window pane of glass that one little stone can bring the whole glass window crashing down. So even one sin in the body of Christ is disruptive and divisive and harmful to the shalom, to the well-being of the whole. And so in Matthew 18 and verse 15, Jesus addresses what is required of being a peacemaker, and it is to go to the one who is in sin and to lovingly confront that one who is in sin. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, and to listen to you implies that he hears you and that he repents of his sin 
and changes the course of his direction. If he listens to you, you have won your brother and in that sense restored peace in the body of Christ. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, if he does not take heed to what you are saying, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. It is so important to the peace within the body of Christ. Follow up then with one or two or three witnesses to confirm the fact that it is an established fact, this sin. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them. In other words, if there is no change of course, if there is no true heart repentance that now pursues a different course of action, he says, tell it to the church. Why to the church? Because the peace of the whole church has been affected. There has now come this ripple effect that has affected every ship that is upon the pond. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... What is implied there that the whole church would then go to this one and say, my brother, my sister, we beg of you to repent. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means be put out of the church so that peace can be restored within the church. This is the third way in which we promote peace. One, peace between God and men, that is objective peace. Second is peace within men, that is subjective peace. Third, peace with men, different from within. Third is with men, this is personal peace. And then finally... The fourth aspect, a peacemaker promotes peace between men. Acting as a mediator, if you will. Acting as a, one who stands in between two parties who are at odds, or who are at difference with one another. To be a peacemaker, one seeks to bring about a reconciliation between two brothers, two sisters within the kingdom so that there is peace restored in the body. A peacemaker graciously steps in when two other parties have had a falling out. Step in when two parties have had a falling out and help mend broken fences. This is what one does when two other people cannot get along. This is what Paul is doing, for example, in, in Philippians chapter 4, when he has to address the, uh, the two women uh, who could not get along. In Philippians 4, verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Synecdoche to live in harmony in the Lord. And so Paul, acting as a peacemaker, says, go to these two women and restore their broken relationship. So these are the four aspects of peacemaking that the Lord desires of us. And it is so important that there are only eight Beatitudes that are listed here. Everything that finds itself in this list is strategic and primary and of great importance. Every family needs to be a family of peacemakers how easy there is for there to be in-house friction and in-house conflict. Fathers, mothers, even siblings must all take it upon themselves to be peacemakers. Churches need to be filled with, with peacemakers. 
We spend so much time with each other. We often spend more time with one another at church than we do with our own flesh and blood who live in other parts of the, of the country. And with this familiarity comes, unfortunately, sometimes uh, opportunity to hurt a feeling or for there to be a misunderstanding or worse, there actually be an understanding. And there needs to be peacemakers who continue to promote peace so that the church will have the power of God. There's two more headings that I quickly want to wrap up with. Number four, the demands of peacemaking. To be sure, peacemaking is hard work. It requires getting involved in the lives of others where there is conflict. It requires rolling up one's sleeves and sticking one's nose into a situation at times where it is unpleasant to bring together either people with God or people with other people. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, the fact that this involves having to make something speaks to the hard work and labor and the perspiration that is necessary to make for peace. It doesn't just automatically fall into place. The devil is real. The flesh is real. Sin is real. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, writes, I confess it is often a thankless office to go about to reconcile differences. Handle a briar never so gently, it will go near to scratch. In other words, if you just pick up a thorn uh, bush or pick up something with a briar on it, you're going to get stuck yourself just picking it up. It will end up scratching you. Watson continues, He that goes to interpose between two fencers... Now, this is written back in the 17th century where men would pull out their swords and they would fence against each other in a sword fight. And what he will say in this sentence is, you step in between two fencers, you're going to get stuck from both sides. You won't make points, you'll get the point. He that goes to interpose between two fencers many times receives the blow. But this duty, though it may lack success as from men, yet it shall not want a blessing from God. Close quote. This is the demand of peacemaking, and it requires much of every single one of us. Think of Christ who is the greatest peacemaker that, that there is, through the blood of His cross has reconciled us to God. Think of what it cost Christ to leave heaven, to come down into this world that had become, has become a jungle of, of sin, to take upon Himself human flesh and to be like us, yet without sin, and to live in a world of conflict and controversy that would ultimately take Him to the cross where He would be crucified to make reconciliation of sinners to God through the blood of His cross. Think of what it cost Christ to be a peacemaker. There is a price for each one of us to pay as well. To bring about reconciliation in the body of Christ. The demands of peacemaking. Brothers and sisters know that it requires much of us Ephesians 4, verse 3, to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we must work diligently and earnestly to preserve the unity which God has created in the bond of peace. The last thing that I want you to note, and we'll wrap this up very quickly, is the designation of peacemaking. At the end of verse 9, we see that Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they, and I'll tell you one more time, it's these and these alone, they and they alone, 
shall be called sons of God. All true followers of Christ are peacemakers. There are no exceptions. If one's habitual lifestyle is being disruptive and divisive, that one is not in the kingdom. That one is outside the kingdom. And if such a one for a season does live this way, he is living as one who is outside the kingdom, though he is in the kingdom. For sons of God are peacemakers. They know what it is to, to once be at war with God and to be brought now into a state of peace with God. And they are so overwhelmed now to have the smile of God rather than being smitten by God that they spend the rest of their lives pursuing peace and promoting peace with, with others. To be a son of God in verse 9, means to be one who is born again, to be born from above. Such a one was once a child of the devil, John, 4, John 6, verse 44, but has become a son of God or a daughter of God, which is synonymous with one who possesses the kingdom of heaven. At the end of verse 3 and at the end of verse 10, both of those Beatitudes, the first and the last, conclude with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This phrase, shall be called sons of God, is a synonymous expression with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall be called sons of God. All true sons of God are peacemakers in their heart, the miracle of grace has made them at peace with God and it now causes them to live a new way as sons of God. Once they were troublemakers in, in this world, once they were those who slandered, once they were those who were divisive, once they were those who caused havoc in the lives of others. Once they were those that divided families and divided relationships. But now that they are sons of God, they have the heart of God, and God is a reconciling God, and God restores that which is broken by His grace. And we take on the heart of God and seek to be those who promote peace with others around us. This is the designation of peacemaking. All peacemakers show themselves to be sons of God. And all who are truly sons of God, born again by His Spirit, are those who are on a path to promote peace. I want to conclude by asking you this question. How does one become a son of God. What is required of us? To put it simply, sonship involves faith alone in Christ alone. It is faith, not works, nor faith and works. It is faith alone that instates us into the family of God. And there is a twofold Faith. We've discussed it before in three headings. I want to give it to you differently. Same pie cut into two slices, not three. There is what we call a general faith. A general faith is one who has faith in the Bible and what it says. It believes in general that God is holy and that we are sinners and that Christ is a Savior. And that we must surrender our lives to Him. This general faith is merely an intellectual faith. It is a head knowledge. James 2.19 speaks of it and says, Even the devils believe and they tremble. It's not enough to have general faith in the mere facts of the Gospel, the mere knowledge of what the Scripture teaches, Hell is filled with people who have general faith. 
There must be second, special faith. Saving faith. It is a faith in which one makes a decision. Comes to a decisive fork in the road in one's life. And believes what the Bible says about his standing of being at war with God and seeing that he has no way to have any victory in a war with God, sees that Christ, through His cross, is the only way that I can have peace with God, that God's wrath is appeased by the blood of Christ, that God is propitiated by the death of Christ for me. And then comes to the place of personal, individual, special faith, where you go all the way and come to the place where you actually entrust your life to Christ. Where you come to rest in Him. No longer striving by your religiosity to find acceptance or approval with God. But you come to the place where you realize, I cannot save myself. The standard is too high. I come now and I accept God's terms of peace and I surrender. I surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe upon Christ. I take that decisive step and entrust all that I am to all that He is. I embrace Christ by faith. I I receive Him as my personal Lord and Savior. That moves far beyond general faith, which is just head knowledge faith, or warm emotions faith. It goes all the way to decisive volitional faith. Have you made this choice to commit your life to Jesus Christ? Do you understand that without Christ, God is at war with you and you are at war with God and your self-righteousness only provokes and angers the wrath of God yet more. But that God has offered peace. He offers terms of peace. He will not negotiate with you. He will not cut a special deal with you. The terms of peace are as they are. The death of God's own Son. The perfection of His sacrifice. The sufficiency of His atonement for sinners. The blood of Christ shed for sinners upon Calvary's cross. These are the terms of peace. You personally, individually, must reach out your hand and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. No one else can do this for you. No one else will do this for you. This offer is being made to you right now. There are some here today who may be thinking, I cannot run to the car fast enough. I cannot get out of here fast enough. You are the very one to whom I'm speaking. The offer is being made from God to you. It is a gracious offer. It is a kind offer. It is not terms of war. It is terms of peace. God is willing through His Son to receive you into His family and make you sons of God. Some of you here this morning are teenagers. Some of you are young men and young women. You've grown up in a Christian family. It is time for you to make your own decision to believe upon Jesus Christ. Others of you are adults. 
this offer is being made to you. Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why would you remain in a state of war with God when you may have His peace? Why would you remain an enemy of God when He is willing to receive you and make you His son and His daughter? While you have opportunity and while you have time, hear this gospel plea. Come to Christ and receive His peace and be saved from the wrath to come. Let us pray. Father, we praise You that You are a peacemaking God. You are a God who delights in making peace with His enemies. Let's put Your glory on display. You revel in this. It allows You to show Your mercy and grace and favor in most vivid fashion for You to make peace with Your enemies. God, I pray that You will make peace with Your enemies here today. Open their eyes. Open their ears. Open their hearts. Cause them to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The following has been an audio recording of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church and is under the direct copyright of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. All recordings may be used freely for the ministry and application of the Word of God. However, written permission must be obtained from Christ Fellowship Baptist Church before any recording is broadcast or redistributed in any form. In no way should this recording be disseminated without the express consent of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church.